Hello everyone and welcome to Forgotten True Crime by Oki Investigations, the true crime podcast where we tell the stories of crimes that happened long ago. If you're a true crime fan, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. That way, when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Also, check us out on our Facebook page, Oki Investigations, and visit our blog, over at truecrime.blog, where we post a lot of the cool things that we found for each episode. This episode, Silent Night, Deadly Night, has a lot of exciting stuff for you to dig into. Make sure you go there and check it out. Parts of the story may contain opinions and speculations and should be taken as such. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This story discusses suicide. If you or anyone else you know is suicidal, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. This is a United States-based suicide prevention network of over 160 crisis centers that provides 24-7 service via toll-free hotline with the number one 800 273-8255. It is available to anyone in a suicidal or emotional distress crisis. Hello everyone, we are still in the 12 Days of Murder series. From now until the new year, I'll be debuting several new episodes that are Christmas-themed Many of these cases are ones you've probably never heard of before, so make sure you subscribe to the show. That way, when we have new episodes, you'll be the first to know. Check out that truecrime.blog and our Facebook page as well, Oki Investigations, for bonus stories that we've got posted. Got some pretty good ones up there. I hope everyone's doing well. This has been a very busy holiday season for me. But I prefer it that way. My son is coming down from college to spend the month with us, and I'm very excited about that. It'll be nice having everyone in the house again. Last time on the program, you will remember we were telling the tragic story of Elizabeth Ford Griffith. Elizabeth was engaged to Army Captain George Gordon. She was found dead at work. Her boss and former boyfriend, Christopher G. Schott, was the prime suspect in the case. He told police he was out delivering presents with little Laureen Gardner. When he left Elizabeth, she was alive and well. When they came back, she was dead. The doctor stated that he believed that Elizabeth had taken her own life. The coroner believed otherwise. If Elizabeth had shot herself, she would have to have done it in a very odd sitting position. She would have powder burns on her clothing, showing that the gun was pressed near her, and none of those were present. So the weapon had to have been fired away from the body making it all too difficult to do 
when in an odd sitting position. Besides that, there was little evidence that the doctor had committed the crime. At this time, the only person who could break the doctor's alibi and show that he was indeed at the office near the time of the murder is coincidentally the victim's sister, Katie Mae Griffith. She stated that she had called around 2 p.m. and that the doctor answered the phone at that time. But there was something just being revealed to the public. There was another witness to the doctor's whereabouts at the time of the murder. You see, one of the first things that police had done was canvas the neighborhood. They interviewed anyone and everyone who lived within the area. Police wanted to know if they had heard the gunshot and if they knew what time it was. Police got much more than what they bargained for when they talked to Miss Ellis Rudolph. She told the police that she lived across from the doctor's office, that on Christmas Eve, around 2.30 p.m., she heard a gunshot. She stepped outside to see what had happened, but all she saw was Dr. Shot coming out of his office. He approached Miss Rudolph and asked if she had heard anything, and she told him about the loud bang sound. The doctor told her to check to see if anyone else had heard it, but the doctor was gone when she came back. A second witness came forward as well, Mr. William J. Ryan. He stated that he was walking down the street when he saw Dr. Schott come out of his office right around 2.30 p.m. He said they had a very brief conversation, and then he just went on about his day. He didn't realize until he had heard about the death of Elizabeth and the arrest of the doctor that he might have just seen the doctor just right after the murder. These statements gave the state attorneys enough to arrest the doctor for murder. But Dr. Schott was not the only one in trouble here because the state's attorneys were so sure that the doctor was not telling the truth about his movements on Christmas Eve that it meant that little Lorraine Gardner, who stated she was with the doctor the entire day, was also not telling the truth. Since the doctor's arrest, the police had let Lorraine go into a detention center. Their reasoning was that her parents let her do as she pleased and were obviously not watching over her. The judge placed a $200 bell on her release and her parents quickly paid it. So detectives knew that she was back at home. So on December 28th, 1919, police and detectives entered the Gardner home and then arrested Lorraine as an accomplice to murder. While she was being arrested, her parents were pleading that she not be taken. When that didn't work, they screamed at Lorraine not to cooperate with detectives and not to answer a single question. Other than her statements, the detectives and attorneys had reason to suspect Lorene as knowing more than she was letting on. She had shown little to no emotion of the death of someone she had seen throughout that day. 
This was, in the eyes of the police, very suspicious. When told of the arrest of Lorene, Dr. Schott was conducting an interview with the Courier-Journal paper. He told the paper several things, but one of them stuck out as very odd. He said, now that they have arrested her, I will tell you something that I've never yet said. After Lorene and I left the standard dairy lunch before the body was found on Wednesday and were getting in the automobile, I said, gee, I wonder if she killed herself. When we arrived in front of my office, I said, Lorene, you can come in the office with me. I had a fear that the girl killed herself, he said. The statement was very odd. To be brought up in such a manner only casts more doubt in Dr. Schott's innocence in my eyes. He's trying too hard to prove his own innocence here. If he had told Laureen his suspicions, then there could be someone who would testify that is precisely how he felt at that time. But he didn't. Also, according to Laureen's own statement, she was the first one out of the car. She didn't have to be told to get out and come along. She was already going in. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. On New Year's Eve, Dr. Schott is let out of jail on an $8,000 bell. He told the papers that several female patients were trying to get appointments with him. Many of them had nothing wrong with them. They just wanted to be around him. He suggested that he found it hard to get on without a secretary and that he was putting out an ad to hire a new one. Amazingly, he found someone willing to replace Elizabeth, 45-year-old Miss Hardung, who had been looking for a job. She reported that the phone in the office had constantly been ringing and that the caller would then either hang up or say, well, they had the wrong number. Lots of curious onlookers, pretty much. Oddly enough, the same night that Dr. Schott is let out of jail, someone went to the address that the paper listed where Mr. William Ryan lived. He's the one who's a witness and said he saw the doctor at his office around the time of the murder. And this unknown person left a letter at the door that threatened the life of William Ryan. This letter was written in red ink and had a photo of William inside with red ink splattered on it like blood. The letter was handed over to the police. The coroner's jury announced their verdict on January 3rd, 1920. They were split on if Elizabeth killed herself or not. They could not really say one way or the other. They knew that she had died of the gunshot, but not by whose hand. The problem they had was that they did a test with Dr. Schott's gun. They shot a piece of cheesecloth with it at various lengths 
to see how far you would need to hold it out to not get powder burns. This test showed that all you had to do with this gun was hold it out three inches or more, and it would not produce those burns. This was damning to the state's stance on why they believed the doctor was guilty in the first place. Now, a grand jury is different than a jury trial. In a jury trial, the state has to prove that the accused is guilty without a shadow of a doubt. It's the state's job to show that 100% this person is guilty. But in a grand jury case, all the state needs to do is prove that there's enough evidence to charge someone with a crime. They don't have to prove anything. They just need to show that there's enough there for us to think that this person did it. So when the grand jury started seeing this case, they were flooded with witness statements from both sides of the aisle. Several took the stand, including Elizabeth's sister, her parents, those who received presents from Dr. Schott, the person who served him lunch that day. Little Lorreen testified for Dr. Schott as well. They all told what they had witnessed and how it all happened that day. While all of this is going on, the state found another charge to place against Dr. Schott, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Dr. Schott and Lorraine Gardner's parents were all brought up on this charge. The state was basically saying that you personally helped this child break the law and did nothing about it. This wasn't a severe charge it didn't mean that they would spend a lot of time or any real time in jail or prison if convicted but because this is such a publicized case it ended up being in almost every paper in the state it took several days for the jury to decide whether there was enough to charge the doctor with elizabeth's murder in the end they exonerated Dr. Schott, of any wrongdoing. It was the decision of the grand jury that there was just not enough evidence to bring the doctor up on murder charges. Elizabeth's mother came out and spoke to the press after the verdict. She talked to the Owensboro Messenger, and this was published on January 14, 1920. There's another and higher court, said Miss John Griffith, mother of the dead girl, when she heard the grand jury's report. And as sure as there is a God in heaven, the guilty will not go unpunished. Anyone who ever knew poor dear Elizabeth knows that she could have never committed suicide. She was bright, sweet, and sunny-natured child. We have received six or seven letters every day since she was killed from people all over the country expressing their sympathy. Because they were not charged, the charges of contributing to a delinquency of a minor were dropped. The state tried every which way to hold and stop the doctor but it seemed like they failed at every single point. A year after this decision, in an odd turn of events, 
Dr. Schott had the body of Elizabeth moved to his family plot. He erected a $500 monument to her, which still stands today. I have a link to this at the truecrime.blog page if you want to see it. It'll be posted just as soon as all the parts of this story are out. Dr. Schott was quoted as saying, I loved Elizabeth, and I feel as if she belonged to me. Kind of creepy. Elizabeth's family oddly went along with this. I can't imagine the doctor could just move a body without their permission. No motive behind that was ever published. I find this very odd and the type of thing you base ghost stories on. <laughs> One of the papers that reported this stated that Dr. Schott vowed to take the open space next to Elizabeth as his own so he would be closer to her. That didn't happen. Now, Dr. Schott was never retried for the death of Elizabeth. He went on about his life, continuing to womanize, putting himself and others in danger, and so on. Typically, this is the part where I tell you that the story is complete, and we discuss how I feel about it. But would you be surprised to learn that there's a part three to this story? Would you be surprised to hear that another murder happened in Dr. Schott's office? just a few years after Elizabeth's murder? And would you be surprised to find out that Dr. Schott was the one that was murdered? Join us next time for the episode three and conclusion of this exciting story, The Murder of Dr. Schott. I'd be interested in hearing everyone's take on this case Email me at okeyinvestigations at gmail.com and tell me how you feel about it. Personally, I think that not only did Dr. Schott kill Elizabeth, but he convinced a 13-year-old girl to help him. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe. It tells the podcasting networks that you enjoy this, and it will actually recommend this podcast to others like you. I will see you all next time. See ya.